When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like dripping dandelions and toes. Oh, you know you can eat dandelions, Sam. Mm. You pop them in, a, sprinkle them in a salad. However, that is to digress. Can you eat toes? Uh, you, I, I imagine you can. You, I imagine you can eat toes. Um, not necessarily human toes, but I imagine you can eat pig's trotters. You can eat uh, the real delicacy in China, aren't they, I think? Um, we will, however, be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of leaving home is, in fact, all about the Viking invasions? Or that the history of hacking is all about code-breaking during World War Two, And those were two of our recent homeschooling episodes. Absolutely. Uh, the man not sitting opposite me, because we are still in lockdown, still, will it ever end? Uh, he will nevertheless help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He's one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire, James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. Good morning. And the man not sitting opposite me, because he is way across town during lockdown and social distancing is the famous historical adventurer Dr Sam Willis off of the telly. Good morning, Sam. I read in the newspaper this morning that schools may well be closed up until Easter <laughs> yes. and ministers will not commit to opening them up thereafter, which I think makes these homeschooling episodes doubly, trebly, quadruply important. I think so, actually. So everyone out there, if you're listening to it, you're enjoying it, do please spread the word. Um, there are, we know there are lots of teachers out there getting kids to listen to this, and um, it would be a good thing if you could inform your history teachers about what we're doing, because it's super fun and we're enjoying it. We are. And can I shout out to our friends at Boulder Academy uh, in London uh, who are doing this? Uh, they're having this as part of their extension homework. Uh, so, guys, hope you're enjoying this. And your teachers rock, by the way. <laughs> so this is another episode in our special series of homeschooling, which it's not too dissimilar from what we do normally. But what we do is we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history and we prove that it does. And today we are doing the history of bathtubs, which, of course, is all about prohibition in America in the 20s. But before we reveal that connection, we should have a little think about how we can do the history of bathtubs, James. What have we got? Oh, well, I I kind of think the modern bathtub is is quite a modern thing, um, invented sort of around the 19th century. Um, you've got evidence of bathtubs from earlier, uh, but they tend to be really um, far flung. I mean, apparently the earliest is around 3,300 BC Ooh. in Crete, where they've discovered copper water pipes beneath an ancient palace. So you can imagine, you know, very, very wealthy people having, having bathtubs. Just to put but that into context, that's, um, that's when Stonehenge was built. That's a long, <laughs> that's that's a long time ago. They're, they're, so they're hanging around having baths. Bathing and, and that sort of thing is, um, 
you know, has an ancient history. You think about in ancient Rome, you know, the communal baths, but actually having your own personal bathtub doesn't actually happen until the 19th century when we have bathtubs designed, um, the sort of modern type of bathtubs um, that we have. Um, and then you look at the, the proliferation of bathtubs when everyone has them. Uh, that's much, much more recent as well. Um, so it's actually a very modern uh, phenomenon, actually having a hotly run, a hotly run, a hot run bath uh, <laughs> that you can get into rather than merely a sort of tub that you fill with with hot water. However, um, there are all sorts of interesting histories associated with bathtubs. For example, uh, the Greek inventor Archimedes, this is the big eureka moment, discovered the physics of displacement while he was there soaking in his ancient Greek bathtub. Uh, the water rose as he got into the tub, uh, which, of course, it proves displacement. And apocryphally, he shouted out Eureka and mm. ran around telling people about this. Ships, ships bathtubs. You'll know all about this, Sam, but apparently on Navy ships, uh, they were designed to you know, carry the sort of most stuff with the minimum amount of waste of space. Um, but there's a, an example in 1943 when President Franklin Roosevelt go, takes a ship, the USS Iowa, to Cairo, uh, to a conference in Cairo and the Tehran Conference, and the Navy install a bathtub specially for him. Um, there are also people who have been killed in bathtubs. Uh, the singer Jim Morrison uh, famous for the the Doors, um, he um, the Doors being the pop group uh, died in a Paris bathtub of a heart attack in 1971 before I was either born. And also, bathtubs are um, connected to hoaxes. And one of the best hoaxes connected to bathtubs was from a journalist named Henry L. Mencken, uh, who was writing in 1917 on December the 28th, and he published an article in the New York Evening Mail entitled A Neglected Anniversary. And he went on to describe the wonderful, curious history of the bathtub in America. And he, he came up with, you know, people thought that bathtubs were actually bad for you and bathing was bad for you and, and they posed a real health risk and America was very slow to accept them until... Uh, Millard Fillmore popularised them by actually having one popped into the White House in 1850. The problem with this article was it was all made up. <laughs> However, that didn't stop other people syndicating it and recycling all of these ideas um, in, in the press. And so the whole thing got on. There were people trying to ban bathing, <laughs> prohibiting bathing. Uh, between November the 1st and March the 15th in 1843, there was an ordinance uh, passed by the Philadelphia Common Council. Uh, it failed to pass by two votes, but it shows that people had actually taken this. And it's not until later on that he actually says that it was a joke, uh, saying that my motive was simply to have some harmless fun in war days. <laughs> I thought that was priceless, Sam. Very good indeed. Um, it makes me wonder what was going on at the time when everyone had uh, got, got so so enraged about having a bath in the White House. I wonder. Um, I've found some wonderful examples of people using bathtubs in history. This is from Doris Robinson, writing during the Second World War. 
in London. During the war years, it was not all horror and fear. We had some happy times and laughed at all sorts of things. I remember one old girl called Mrs Thompson used to come out and put up her umbrella during an air raid as she was afraid of the shrapnel. She thought that the umbrella would save her poor old girl. We used to go out and watch the dogfights and shout hooray when a German plane came down and boo and hiss when a German plane was the victor. At the beginning of the war, I went out with a boy called Ron Kalnan. Sometimes during the bombing, you'd lose your water supply. One evening, Ron and I were carrying a galvanised tin bath full of water back home from his parents' house near Manhouse, which was a long way. Then the air raid siren howled its warning. We emptied the water, put the bath over our heads and ran like anything through the dark streets. The shrapnel whizzed all around and one piece struck the bath with a great clang that sounded right through our heads. Then we had to go back and get another bath full. Wonderful story there of using a bath uh, to protect people from, um, from an air raid in the Second World War. And it also made me think this whole question of bath, James, about different bathing practices. Um, I've been lucky enough to travel travel all over the world and I've seen a variety of different bathing practices. And India in particular uh, is different. This is... Um, from uh, Mohandas Gandhi, who uh, then became a, a very famous Indian nationalist who led peaceful demonstrations against British colonial rule. Um, he described what the Indian practices were in, in 1891. He explains an Indian's uh, attitude to bathing. He does this when he's a law student in London. So um, the, the, the contrast between bathing practices in London and his native India um, were really stark. He takes water from a large vessel placed near him with a goblet and pours it over his body because he believes that the moment you plunge into stagnant water, you render it impure and therefore unfit for further use. That's really interesting, this idea of water being unfit for actually bathing, for cleaning. If it's stagnant, if it's not moving, that means that um, the Indians needed their water to move. They, they like the idea of a shower. And essentially a shower becomes a, a real luxury in India, being cleansed by falling water rather than stagnant, stagnant and static water. But that principle of a shower being interesting and exciting has um, got its own history. Uh, in, we know that in 1849, the great British novelist Charles Dickens spent a bit of time on the Isle of Wight. He was on a holiday where he wrote a bit of his book, David Copperfield, and he rigged up a fancy contraption on a beach that channeled water from a waterfall into a tub which had holes in it. So the tub became a shower and he absolutely loved it. He then spent a fortune on his house in London converting it so that it would have a shower. And he wrote, I don't care for the possibility of a tepid shower, but what I want is a cold shower of the best quality, always charged to an unlimited extent so that I have to pull the string and take any shower of of cold water I choose but this is what has become a positive necessary of life to me and without any disparagement to the warm bath this is perfection it's my first object to secure so there we are uh, Charles Dickens actually thinking that a cold shower is better than a warm bath so boo hiss to all of those Greeks 5,000 years ago However, today what we're going to be doing is talking about bathtubs in particular relation to prohibition in America in the 1920s. Uh, this is a period really associated with uh, alcohol and crime um, when the 18th Amendment of the US Constitution um, bans the national sale, manufacture and transportation of alcohol. Um, I quite like it's the fact is the 18th 
uh, amendment. You should know the amendments of the US Constitution, at least some of them. The first is the right to free speech. The second is the right to bear arms. The third amendment is trial by jury. The 13th, very important, the abolishment of slavery. And the 15th amendment prohibits the denial of the right to vote based on your colour, on your race. Nevertheless, this is the 18th Amendment, and it is all to do with banning the sale of alcohol. I've got a couple of descriptions of how this impacted America. This is from Helen Geltemeyer of Waco in Texas, and she remembers a relative making whiskey. I have an aunt, his sister in Austin, made it. They made it in their bathtub. And the reason why they did it there was because if they found out the cops were coming, they'd just let it go down the drain. Now, there was also something actually called bathtub gin. What you do is you'd make a very rough form of gin, making a a, a mash, it's called, from it might be corn, sugar, fruit, beets, potato, peels, whatever it might be, to make very pure alcohol, 200% proof pure alcohol. That would kill you. So you can't drink it straight. So what they needed to do was to water it down by at least 50%. But the bottles that they filled up uh, the gin and then the water with were too big to fit under the tap in the kitchen. And that's why they used the bathtub, because they could fit their large bottles in the bathtub and they could get the necessary water into it so that they could dilute it to make it drinkable. And we've got another couple of accounts here. This is from William Walco in Pennsylvania. My grandmother, she said she was in jail almost every weekend. They take her to jail. My mother have to find somebody to go bail her out, you know. But that was survival. They needed money so they would make moonshine. And these bachelors were all living with people. You know, they worked in the mine and she'd sell them bottles. You know, they'd pick my grandmother up and away she'd go to jail. But she wasn't the only one. There was a lot of women around this area. I remember my mum that they used to make they used to make that moonshine down in the cellar. And I noticed they'd put it in a little spoon and they'd light it to see if it burns. If it was strong enough, you then knew that it was good. So what's going on here, James? We've got people making whiskey in the bath, people filling up gin bottles in the bath, people worried about getting caught, people getting arrested, people making alcohol down in the cellar, setting fire to it. What on earth is happening? Well, Sam, let me tell you all about prohibition when and why it was introduced. As you said, it's this is we're in the 1920s in the United States of America, and it's in 1920 that it first gets banned, the sale of alcohol. But there's also a prehistory to this, because throughout the 19th century, there's the emergence in the United States of the idea of prohibiting the sale of alcohol. And there are several groups that become established around this time that have very negative attitudes towards the consumption of alcohol because of the social problems that it causes. Groups like the Women's Temperance Union, the Christian Temperance Union, which was established in 1873, and in 1895, towards the end of the 19th century, the Anti-Saloon League. And these were actually very powerful organisations, They had a lot of members, uh, they were very well connected, and they made the idea of prohibition a real political hot potato. And they had some success in the first few decades of the 20th century. In particular, between the years 1906 and 1919, 
26 American states, that's over half of the states in America, passed laws to limit the sale of alcohol. So they had some kind of, you know, some sort of influence there. And they got their message out through a range of ways, um, including through print media. And there's a cartoon um, that was published, for example, in the Chicago American uh, publication in 1917. It's an anti-prohibition cartoon and it shows two young children, an older sister and a tiny little boy standing outside the swing doors of a saloon and the caption runs, Daddy's in there. And then at the bottom it says, and our shoes and stockings and clothes and food are in there too and they'll never come out. So what that me the message there is that their father is in the saloon drinking away all the family's money. And that is one of the big problems um, associated with the consumption of alcohol, that people are addicted to it and spending too much money that is needed for other things. And, and what we've got here is the poor children can't even you know, get clothed properly. Now, America wasn't alone in facing demands for restrictions on alcohol. And in other parts of the world, by 1919... Uh, prohibition had been introduced. Places like Russia, like Norway, like Finland, like Iceland, even parts of Canada. Um, and when prohibition gets introduced in the United States in 1920, it is called the noble experiment. So it's seen as something that is helping society. However, and this is quite important when we're thinking about prohibition, it also created as many problems as it solved. And in a little bit, Sam's going to tell you about some of those problems. Um, but most notably, the spread of gangsterism and the rise of organised crime, all the stuff that Sam was talking about, making this illicit, illegal liquor, you know, is part of this, this underground, um, illegal, gangster-run, organised crime. So much so that by 1933, when President Franklin Roosevelt is in power... Prohibition is ended. Now, the momentum for prohibition had been building up in the United States um, when they entered into the First World War in 1917, all the stuff that we've already been talking about. And from this period onwards, when they're in the war, um, the campaign gathered a pace. So the female reformers that I've talked about already argued that there was clear links between consumption of alcohol and wife beating and child abuse and these were really strong arguments that that connected to the family and the domestic scene and the household and that those were emotional arguments as well that could really pull on the heartstrings there were also very practical arguments that were put forward from industrialists, businessmen, people like Henry Ford, the inventor of the Ford motor car. And they were concerned in a different way. They were concerned that drinking reduced the efficiency and output of workers at work. If people turned up either drunk or hungover, they weren't going to be as efficient or as productive. And so that was something that was detrimental to the industrial output in America. We've also got groups like religious groups who see alcohol as the root of all sin, that it was it was evil. They see it as part of the devil's work. And they, of course, were keen to add their voice to these female reformers and to these industrialists in order to support prohibition. 
And it was felt that prohibition would support and strengthen traditional values of American people who were God-fearing, hard-working, family-oriented and business-minded and thrifty. And also it would encourage people coming into the country, those immigrants who were coming to America, to follow these values. And America's participation in the war, the First World War, created many problems around the issue of prohibition. Many brewers were German, of German origin, and when the USA declares war on Germany, the temperance movement and the anti-saloon league saw it as patriotic, that actually it was against these sort of German um, uh, alcohol manufacturers. And When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Beer at the time was called the Kaiser's Brew. In other words, the German German leader, the German king, the Kaiser. Uh, and there was a sort of spread of anti-German feeling that was connected to prohibition, which I think is very interesting. In September 1918, uh, towards the end of the war, President Woodrow Wilson bans beer production until the war has ended. Um there was little opposition to this. Uh, there were not even any organised bodies such as brewers associations to counter it. Um, and the prohibition amendment, which stopped the manufacture, sale or transportation of intoxicating liquors, was ratified in Congress in January 1919 and was scheduled to come into effect one year later. Now, the amendment didn't outlaw buying or drinking alcohol nor did it define the term intoxicating liquors. But in 1920, Congress passed the Volstead Act, which defined intoxicating liquors as anything containing more than 0.5% alcohol. And the people who were responsible for enforcing this prohibition was the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, so there we are, Sam. There's the introduction of prohibition. And you're going to go on to tell us about the effects that prohibition had on American society. Absolutely. I mean, the, the first thing it did is it drove drinkers and drinking underground. So they soon discovered that if you tell people not to do something that they love, they'll just carry on doing it, but out of sight. Uh, and so they discovered it was impossible to prevent people drinking any alcohol. Huge numbers were prepared to break the law, not only to produce the alcohol, but also to drink it and to drink it in sort of semi-public. They drank it in private bars. Um, and they were known as speakeasies. And drinking alcohol in private bars like these speakeasies didn't feel to them like breaking the law. So... It's created a, a situation where you've got people w wanting something, 
which could not be provided by legitimate means. It, it creates a huge gap in the market, and into that gap stepped the gangsters. I mentioned the word speakeasy there. It's quite interesting because one of the things that it did was change the change the vocabulary, change the language. A lot of new terms came uh, into regular use during this period. You've got a speakeasy, which is like an, a, an illegal pub, basically. A bootlegger, which is someone who either makes or sells uh, illegal alcohol. A bathtub gin, I mentioned that, that's a home-brewed gin. A still is a, is a device for distilling, uh, distilling alcohol. Moonshine is the name of that illegally distilled or smuggled alcohol. And a rum runner, a great term that, someone who illegally transports that liquor. So you're, you're having huge amounts of illegal booze being, being made and being sold and being transported. That smuggling really is is important. You've got to think about people wanting to... It's not just the Americans making their own illegal alcohol. There are people bringing um, alcohol made legally elsewhere into America. So people smuggling it in from Europe, Mexico, Canada, the Caribbean. And the US has an enormous uh, amount of coastline, 30,000 kilometres at least, as well as land borders to guard. And it's impossible to guard them all nowadays, let alone in the 1920s. So it was very difficult indeed to stop that coming in. The speakeasies I mentioned before, well, it actually turned out that after Prohibition, there were more speakeasies than there had been legal saloons, legal bars in the old days. In, in New York alone, there were more than 30,000 speakeasies in the 1930s. Um, but the real thing, I think, to talk about is the impact on health. So it was initially introduced because of fears of alcoholism on health. And certainly deaths from being addicted to alcohol uh, had fallen by 80% by 1921. But by 1926, 50,000 people had died from poisoned alcohol. The problem is, is people are making this alcohol in an unregulated way. So they're making dangerous alcohol. There are diseases associated with alcoholism, one of which is cirrhosis of the liver. And deaths from that, male deaths, certainly fell from 29.5 per 100,000 in 1911 to 10.7 per 100,000 in 1929. But there is a huge increase in other problems, and they're terrible. There's an increase in blindness. There's an increase in paralysis. And that is all because of people drinking um, poisoned, prohibited alcohol. Um, just some fact here. In New York in 1926, about 750 people died from drinking uh, alcohol-laced bootlegged liquor. Um, and it was always really bad around New Year's with everyone drinking to celebrate the New Year. So in 1927, you've got people queuing up outside the Bellevue Hospital, all displaying symptoms of poisoning from alcohol. And on that day, 41 people died. Hundreds more New Yorkers died later in the year. In Philadelphia, 307 died that January, 163 in Chicago. Uh, there are 15,000 people poisoned in just one county in Kansas. Um, and up to 50,000 people may have died from repurposed industrial alcohol nationwide. That's kind of alcohol that's used for cleaning primarily. And there's a particular problem with something called, uh, it's an alcoholic beverage called Ginger Jake. And in 1930, a pair of men cooked this up. 
um, and it's responsible for crippling up to 100,000 people across America. This is the brothers-in-law Harry Gross and Marks Raceman. And what they do is they, they take it's an extract of Jamaican ginger and it's an old patented medicinal remedy with powder mixed with alcohol. But what they do is they add something to hide the alcohol from the prohibition agents and they add a chemical called triorthocretyl phosphate. It's also known as Lindel. This stuff, it's odourless, you can't taste it, you can't smell it, but it's a plasticizer. It's a substance basically added to make material softer, to make it more flexible. It's an industrial chemical. It's used to make film for cameras and explosives. They circulate about a 1,000 gallons of this from 1929 to 1930, and it's being sold as liquid medicine. But it's soon discovered that it's toxic, it's toxic to nerve cells. It's caused paralysis, particularly below the waist, causing impotence in men. Um, and it produced an epidemic of damage to the legs of drinkers. So from between 35,000 and 100,000 people were afflicted with a slow limp. And it was known as Jake Leg or a Jake Walk. Many of the injured were poor, many of them were immigrants, and many of them were African-Americans. And what's fascinating about this is it finds its way into the local music. In the 1930s, the Allen Brothers, is a Tennessee country band, record a blues song called the Jake Walk Blues. And I'm going to play it to you. <laughs> I can't eat, I can't talk Been drinking, been Jake Lord, now I can't walk Now I ain't got nothing, now to lose Cause I'm a Jake walking purple with the Jake walk blues Been drinking, been Jake Lord I ain't got nothing, now to lose Jake will walk in purple with the Jake Walk Blues. That's the Jake Walk Blues from the Allen Brothers in 1930. Very good. Very good. And you are now going to tell us how all of this led to the rise of gangsters. Yes, well, one of the problems is that, of course, everyone is prepared to break the law. And Sam has already told us about the number of speakeasies, the thirst for alcohol that continues. And these circumstances were ripe for the emergence of gangsters. You know, and, you know, people like Al Capone, who I'll talk to you about in a little bit, you know, were involved in making this, in running it, in selling it. And it became part of a whole series of different kinds of crime that they were involved in. And the problem is that it was too easy to smuggle the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, who were 
task with enforcing prohibition found the task of actually <laughs> running all this down impossible because they were so understaffed. They never had more than two and a half thousand agents. And if you think about that number that Sam talked about of 30,000 speakeasies in New York alone, it's no wonder that they couldn't get things under control. And the other thing is that many of them were corrupt. They were paid by the gangs. So they were paid by the gang leaders. And most famous of these IRS agents was a man called Elliot Ness, who eventually arrested Al Capone. Um, but they were, you know, they were short staffed and they were not able to get on top of it. And the thing is that most Americans were prepared to break the prohibition law. And so what we have in the 1920s is effectively a new criminal age beginning and the making and selling of alcohol brought huge profits. And the thing with that is that if you're making all of that money, you can use it to bribe police and city officials uh, who were aware of speakeasies and bootleggers, but you could buy their silence. And one New York politician said it would take over a quarter of a million federal agents in order to enforce prohibition and that hundreds more would be needed to basically investigate the police for corruption. And what followed in the 1920s was basically public corruption on a scale that had never before been seen in the United States. It was rampant. It was everywhere. And the character that probably typifies this gangster era that we see emerging during the Prohibition era, is a man called Al Capone. And Al Capone was the son of Italian immigrants. He left school at a very early age and he became involved in small-time criminal activities. And he goes by the name of Scarface. It was a very sort of scary name for him. And he apparently got this because when he was working as a bouncer at a New York nightclub, he was in a fight and got a scar across his face. He had links to a very powerful uh, gangster called Johnny Torrio uh, in Chicago. And he joins his gang uh, and he eventually rises up the ranks and takes over Torrio's operations. And Capone basically cements his position as one of the major gangsters in Chicago at this time. And he did this by bribing local officials with money so that they basically all these sort of local officials were in his pocket and he was able to get away with all of his illegal activities. And it's, it's thought that before long he had over 50% of the city's employees in his payroll. And at this time, gangsters are seen as very romantic figures. You know, there are Hollywood movies of them. They're seen as these sort of, you know, glorious figures. And there's a, a film in 1932 named Scarface by Howard Hughes, uh, which is about, you know, the which is about the sort of the, the sort of romantic side of gangsterism. Um, so Capone, back to Capone, I've said that he controls the city figures. He controls the mayor, senior police officers. He fixes local elections and he controls a whole empire of crime. 
He controls breweries, distilleries, nightclubs, racetracks, horses, brothels, gambling houses, bookmakers joints, as well as speakeasies. So alcohol becomes part of a whole series of crimes that he is organising. And despite these criminal activities, not only is he seen as a very glamorous person as a gangster, but also he moves in very elevated high social circles. Um, and he he is a sort of almost a sort of Robin Hood type character as well, because he opens up soup kitchens after the 1929 Wall Street crash. He orders stores to give clothes and food to those who are in need after everyone sort of loses their jobs. And all of this is at his own expense. So there is a degree of popular public support for him. He also is involved in pretty sort of bloody operations. And as he's trying to cement his power base in Chicago, he tries to have a turf war with other gangs. And there's a very infamous uh, massacre that takes place called the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, uh, where he organises the shooting of several leaders of rival gangs led by Bugs Moran in broad daylight, uh, and it's this incident in particular that begins to show how dangerous gangsterism is and how it can actually disturb the peace and safety of people. So basically these these gangster characters like Capone, who are seen as glamorous, you actually, the you know, the blinkers are off. You actually see them for, you know, the violent criminals that they are. And by the end of almost by the end of the Prohibition era in 1931, Capone is caught by Elliot Ness and he's prosecuted for income tax evasion for the years of 1925 to 1929. So he's not actually caught for prohibition, but he's caught on a technicality of not paying his taxes. And it's thought that he owed more than $200,000 in taxes from gambling profits alone. He was found guilty and his time as a gang leader of his gangster crew was over. Uh, and with the demise of Capone, we almost seem to have the sort of the end of the gangster era. With the Depression setting in, American people had plenty of other things to be concerned with. And this is when we get Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in, we've got the New Deal, we've got pump priming, and in 1933, uh, prohibition is no longer banned, and he takes it off the statute books. So there we are, Sam, uh, gangsters. Very good, I enjoyed that. Let's do a little quiz to see if everyone was listening. First up, what was the temperance movement? And number two, in what year was prohibition introduced in the United States? Number three, what is bathtub gin? Number four, what does the term speakeasy mean? Five, why was it so difficult to stop smuggling? Number six, who was Al Capone? Mm, and do we have a little task for everyone, James? We do have a task. We have a task indeed. We have two tasks. So the first task is a writing task. And what we would like you to write is what were the effects of prohibition on American people? 
So what were the effects of prohibition on American people? So have a listen back to what Sam was saying on that and try and come up with four different areas to talk about. The other task, if you're feeling particularly artistic, is to design a prohibition poster. So a poster that basically shows the evils of of alcohol. And this may be from a religious point of view. It may be from the Women's Christian Temperance League, for example, or it may be uh, one of Henry Ford's employees. So there we are, uh, a writing task and a drawing task, an arty task. Very good. I hope you've all enjoyed that, guys. We've got more coming your way soon and some more of our our usual episodes, which I'm looking forward to doing. Um, Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell. The podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and we are also on Facebook. So follow us there. You can also see everything that we've been doing since our incarnation in 2016 on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And if you are interested in homeschooling episodes, we have a new landing page on the website where you can navigate round all the episodes that we've done by period. Good stuff. All right, thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back again with you soon. Bye. Take care, guys. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.